Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Anupa Mystery, and you're listening to Burnout a podcast featuring short conversations about creative sustainability with working artists from Toronto and beyond. Some still don't know what to do. Some still don't know what to do. Some still don't know what to do. Before I get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that this is the last one for the season. There's no real reason other than sometimes, especially during a pandemic, you just have to take some things off your plate. Thank you so much for all of your incredible support over this last season. It's been really heartening to see the show grow. But if you want to stay in touch, um, subscribe to my newsletter where I talk about the things that I'm going through creatively and share work by some of my favorite artists. So kind of like this podcast, you can find the newsletter at anupa.substack.com, A-N-U-P-A dot substack.com. To close things out, it's a big one with Vivek Shreya. She's something of a Camlet darling the author of seven books, including 2018's I'm Afraid of Men, and a new novel called The Subtweet, about two brown girls who develop a deep friendship through their love of music. I'm a bit embarrassed because even though we met in the office of Vivek's publisher here in Toronto, ECW Press, we lost track of time and forgot to go into the book. But it was for a very good reason, because she was here in Toronto earlier this year for the premiere of her solo stage show, How to Fail as a Pop Star. It's a really intimate play about dreams that don't come true, based on Vivek's real-life ambition to be a pop star. So we talk about a classic burnout topic, which is failure. And we also touch on her childhood in Edmonton and returning to Alberta to teach at the University of Calgary. And even though it was a little bit hard for us, we talk about the brown girl thing, too. My name is Vivek Shreya, and I'm an artist. Uh, I'm an Aquarius. Uh, Yeah. So you were one of the first people I wanted to chat with for this podcast. I'm so glad that we made it happen. And I was thinking about people like Shad and people like yourself who are just like always doing stuff. And I was like, how the hell do you do that? I don't know how to do that. It's actually, I think, an amazing opportunity for us to talk now because you have this show out called How to Fail as a Pop Star. Yeah. Which implies that even though you're good at making stuff, it's not been an easy road for you. 
you know, I often feel like I'm not necessarily the most talented artist out there. And I don't think my ideas are the best ideas. And I'm not saying that to be self-deprecating, but I think in a lot of ways, my greatest strength has been persistence. Like Mm. I just kind of keep going (laughs) and keep going, but that's its own kind of labor. And that also sort of takes a toll because you're just sort of like, and why am I doing this yet again? (laughs) There's a joy that comes from creation, from creativity, and then being able to like connect to others through that process that I'm, I guess, addicted to. Um, Ooh, say more. Well, just, you know, what it means to like, you know, observe something or see something. And I think you're really good at this as well. Like where you see something that maybe other people aren't seeing and then you kind of clarify it in a way. Like I think my job as an artist is to pay attention to what, you know, is happening around me and then finding a way to talk about it and um, or sing about it or whatever it is. And um, that's one part of the creative process, which I just really love, which is like, how do you take an idea and then turn it into something, whatever it is. And then the second part is like what it means to like be on stage or, uh, you know, be in a bookstore or whatever, and then like communicate that. So in the play at the, was it at, it was at the community center, yeah, the not Sai, a, not at a temple. Center. Yeah. I don't know if you know Sai Baba is, but it's yeah. like a religious guru. And so I like used to sing in the, my religious organization. I mean, I guess you could say it's a temple, but in a lot of ways it, it was framed as non-denominational. So mm. like the, the practice was sort of centered around like all religions are one, but Hinduism is better. Right. <laughs> that was sort of like the context. Yeah. You know, as I talk about in the play, it was there that I, I started writing my first songs. Mm-hmm. And they were only, they were like mostly devotional songs, but music sort of became a way to um, establish safety in junior high um, and win popularity, especially as like a brown queer kid. I was treated as abnormal from Monday to Friday in school. Um, at the Sci Center, I was treated as special. And so like leaning into that was like the, like my armor for the rest of the week. So I mm. think, and then starting to do that and explore that in school was also armor so in a lot of ways music was more of like a was protection Mm. um and i think it was when i started making friends with white people actually (laughs) where they were like you should do this for real and i was like what does that mean and they were like you know like I mean, obviously I was watching much music and all those things, but like, yeah. I don't think I really ever thought like that could be me until like, I remember like, you know, my first, my white lesbian girlfriend being like, you should pursue this. And I was like, oh, you know, and I think I was like 17, 18 in there. Um, and so that's when it sort of changed into like, okay, I want to pursue this as a career. Hmm. Um, when did you start making other stuff? Um, Well, I didn't, I sort of stayed with music. So, I mean, that's what's been interesting about my career. It's a very strange thing. If people are familiar with me, they know me as a writer. Yeah. But that's not the thing for me. Like, that wasn't the thing for me. So, I didn't start writing. And then uh, I started writing in, um, God, I want to say 2011, um, 2010 Mm -hmm. in there um, because my music career wasn't working and I just, I felt I needed to still be creative, uh, but I didn't know how to be creative with music because when you love something as I'm sure you've experienced, and maybe that's how you feel about this podcast, but it's like when you love something so much, um, you start to forget why you like doing it. And with music, I was like, I don't know why I like this. And so I started writing, which ended up being, um, more successful for me in a lot of ways, in, in, in most ways, actually. And so it's been strange. And then uh, music 
I sorry, writing books then opened me up to other genres. Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly I was like, oh, I'm not just a musician. I Maybe I'm interested in making video art. Maybe I'm interested in like exploring film. Photography. Photography, yeah. exactly. So Now the stage. Yeah, now theater. <laughs> so I, I think in some ways, you know, um, it's been a quote unquote good thing, I think, to be uh, exploring other mediums. But as I sort of explain, explore in the play, there's still a lot of heartache for the thing that didn't work out for the one that got away at some point, I want to say like in like maybe like in my mid thirties where I was like, actually being multidisciplinary is kind of fun. Yeah. There's something actually really exciting about doing a lot of things. And part of it is that the less, you know, about the benchmarks in a lot of ways, the more you can actually enjoy the thing that you're doing. And so like with my first short film too, it was like, I don't know what success looks like in the film area or even visual art. I have no idea. Like, is it having an exhibit at the Guggenheim? Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I think that like, for me, that's, that's what's enjoyable about being multidisciplinary is just trying different things, but also trying to like, honor the sort of sacredness of creation without getting mired in the, oh, but does this, did it do this thing? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I don't know. No, it does. It absolutely makes sense. So speaking of trying things, can you talk about the show? How to fail (laughs) as a pop star? How did it come about? (laughs) Well, I mean, so actually I started reading a lot during when I was editing the subtweet, my Mm -hmm. new novel that's coming out. Um, When is that coming out? It's coming in April. Okay. I started reading music biographies in 2018 just like as a way to, I don't know, just learn how people are talking about music. And it was reading music biographies that I was like, oh man, I would love to write one. I would love to. So I read the Timbaland biography. Uh, Okay. Um, I read one about Joni Mitchell. I read the Buffy St. Marie one, which was amazing. Andrea Warner's. Yeah, Yeah. Andrea Warner's, which is incredible. And, but the thing is, those books for them to be successful, you have to know Pony. You have to like, you have to have heard it. So that way when you read about it, you're like, oh yeah, like that's what was happening when he was writing that song. Mm-hmm. Whereas like for my career, if I was like, and then when I was in my kitchen writing blah, blah, like nobody knows it. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't, it's not going to have the same impact. And simultaneously I wanted to do theater for a while because my work does tend to be performative. So like, you know, when I tour a book, I tend not to just read off a page like in the past I've like it's been monologue or I've included music and so in my mind theater has been an opportunity to like combine a lot of the things that I do together um and so I've been in touch like I would say over the past five years with Brendan Healy who's the director of the play and the artistic director artistic director at Buddy uh, he used to be the artistic director at Buddy's and now he's the artistic director at Can Stage and I actually called him when being like how to fail as a pop star like you know a story about us you know someone who doesn't actually succeed. Um, yeah, so that was part of the genesis. And if if anything, I was very attached to the failure being honored. Like there was a lot of conversations at the table about, you know, some of the stuff we're talking about where it's like, um, you know, but why not talk about all the things you've done after? Yeah. And I was very clear that I was like, no, I don't want this to be about like lemonade. You know, I don't want it to be like this thing didn't work out. So I, I grew this other thing. Yeah. I want it to be like about sitting in the pain of mm. like not making it. Can you talk about that? When I go to bed at night, the place that I ache the most is music. Like it's the thing that I feel a lot of pain about. And, you know, it's not, you know, it's not the kind of thing, especially 
I, I, like we had a lot of conversations around the table too about the difference between musician versus pop star. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I'm in a band with my brother. Music will always be part of my life. I, you know, I, I'm doing okay. You know, like I performed at folk fest or whatever, but like the parameters as a Brown queer artist in this country, as you know, are like, they are what they are. And, you know, being a musician that tours my brother and plays to audiences of 30 to 40 people in Halifax, it's nice, but it's, that wasn't the dream. And so, mm. and being a writer is really nice. And I'm, I'm really grateful that like people read the books and stuff, but like, that was also not the dream either. And so I think for me, this play was an opportunity to really honor, especially as I like inch towards 40. And it's like, definitely not going to happen. I, I, it's an opportunity for me to just be honest about that and also kind of grieve it, you know, like be like, this is the thing I really wanted the most and it's not going to happen. And it hurts. I wanted to make a Susan Boyle joke. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I could have, <laughs> but I think that that's the thing. Like, I think that we are so uncomfortable, like never say never. And it's like, mm. you know, like, I think that that's coming from a well-intentioned place. But I think, like, you know, the joke that I, I always make is, like, when you see those memes on on Twitter, it's like, you know, Toni Morrison wrote her first book when she was 40. But no one ever says that about pop stars, right? right like, no yeah. one's ever, like, you know, Beyonce had her first number one at 75. Like, it's like, it's not a thing. <laughs> to be like oh out of everything there needs to be like an outcome or a learning or anything mm -hmm. like that but I mean has anything come up for you in the last week of doing shows like are you is there anything new that you're processing or that you're understanding about about this work and about um about the idea of failure in and of itself I find it hard almost every night and I think for me it sort of confirms the fact that like um, confronting failure and doing it publicly is just, is very painful, mm -hmm. right? That it actually doesn't get better, that it hasn't gotten better. Like, and I think that that's been my whole thing about failure has been like, this thing still really hurts. And the fact that I've done it 10 times now, and every time I get to the ending and I was sort of like really confronted with failure, the fact that it's always very emotional for me, I think sort of, uh, yeah, just confirms what I've always known, which is that like, in some ways failure is uh irreconcilable like there's there's no there's not really a happy ending here i did not understand that and moving away from this like success failure binary i had to be like okay like maybe you need to have more of like a a, a daily touch point if that makes sense so so for me it like really came back down to like when i wake up in the morning like am i happy if i'm not happy that's okay but like how can i like make this day as successful as possible like within sitting in that feeling mm -hmm. and that was like i don't know how i even came to that conclusion i mean yeah people spend their whole lifetime trying to get there so it's been very um it's been really really life-changing you know and um i think it's like given me so much more creative freedom and allows me to see um 
like connections in my work that I didn't see before. And yeah, it's, 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 it's just nice. And so that's why I really appreciated um, the fact that you made a whole play about <laughs> failure because I was like, I think it is something that we need to, we need to think about because also when you hold on to failure and you don't process that failure, like what does it do to you? Totally. I could have kept hitting that wall over and over again and being like, no, but music, no, but music, no, but music, no, but music. But like, I, you know, like even now I'm teacher in Calgary, mm -hmm. you know, and I had so many people in Toronto be like, why are you moving to Calgary? You should be moving to Paris. I'm like, oh, this conversation again, you know, like there's just this idea that like, you know, you need to live in Toronto or you need to live in a major city to have like a certain kind of success. And you know, honestly, I'm like very happy in Calgary. I actually really like it. I really like my job. And I, I hope that I always have the sort of, you know, courage to, to be open to something as opposed to being very attached to one particular thing. And I think mm -hmm. if I am going to say something that I have learned from failure, yeah. um, is, is to be open to other possibilities, to not just get stuck in one thing. And that's not to say that I, you know, I feel like I devoted like a good, you know, decade and a half, if not two decades to music. Yeah, when I was offered the job, um, I wasn't able to take it right away. So I actually pushed it. And I was like, it's, I'm going to have a romantic nine last months in Toronto. It was actually very hard because there was just a lot of just chatter, right? A lot of like, are you sure? Is this the right thing you want to be doing? In 2016, I played like Massey Hall for the first time. And I mean, I was opening for Tegan and Sarah, but still it was like, oh my God, Massey Hall. Or I did a show at the AGO and I was like the AGO. It was mm -hmm. like, suddenly I was like, in a lot of ways, it was like the most successful I was, ha the most success I'd had and with music actually too. And I was like, and now you're going to move to Calgary? Like, is this really the thing that you do? But I mean, first of all, my mental health, to be honest, if mm. we can celebrate that, <laughs> has been tremendously uh, uplifted <laughs> because Toronto is a hard city. It's, you know, it's full of a lot of like insecurity, which like results in a difficulty to make intimacy. I found it very hard to make friends in the city. And I mean, a lot of the stereotypes I... And again, I'm from Alberta, so, mm. you know, and I know there's stereotypes about Alberta as well, but the stereotypes about Toronto I found to be quite real and true. Like, I, I remember going to party after party in the city where people would be friends with me on Facebook, but then they would not say hi to you at the party. And yeah. it was just like, what is up with this place? Also being close to the mountains, <laughs> like I'm 45 minutes away from the mountains and like just having access to nature is such a privilege, you know, just being able to like... And we, like, I go, like, I'm not one of those people that are like the mountains over there. Like I go once a month. And so just like those kinds of things have just made a tremendous impact. And Calgary has its problems, obviously. Yeah. There's all kinds of problems out there, but also like, I'm really loving teaching. Like I get to go into a classroom and take in, you know, indigenous writers, black writers, writers of color, and like take things that I really care about and mm -hmm. be like, this is science fiction you know, and it's not like a hmm. science fiction and gender class or like, you know, it's not a women in poetry class. It's an intro to creative writing poetry class. And we do, you know, Nahira Wahid, we do, you know, God, I'm blanking here, but it's like it, it, Claudia Rankin and hmm. it's not framed as like a race in poetry class. So yeah, I feel like, oh, that's amazing. It's really, really nice. Yeah. I'm taking a month off this year and it's like the thing I'm looking for the most. And it's like, it's like by month off, I mean like I'm not working on like school, but I'm also not working on art. And mm. the reason why I've decided to do that is because I, I'm like, who am I outside of creativity? Who am I outside mm. of working? And those things unfortunately have started to go hand in hand too. Like I, yeah. I don't really know how to separate, you know, to use your language, being a maker and being a worker. Mm. And I, I did a yoga teacher training for that. Oh shoot. Yeah. Wow. 
I think, you know, it's also super important to talk about how you do all of this. And I feel very um, lucky that people are, are willing to be transparent about that. And, you know, in the show you talk, I, I was thinking about this today when I was kind of like going, like looking over these and I was like, Oh, you, you, you are so transparent about the fact that you got like this bank loan that you like had to get your mom to, to co-sign, co-sign and then you're feeling a lot of shame around that. And then, you know, your parents financially supported you a bit when you got to Toronto. And then I know when we met, and up until you left Toronto, you were working at George Brown. Nine to five, yeah. Yeah, like a full, full nine to five. Nine to five yeah. And now, you know, you're, yes, you, you're doing a stage show and you're writing <clears throat> and all this stuff, but you're also employed Still by working. the University of Calgary, yep. you know? And so um, I guess maybe it's also like, it's just incredibly rare for artists these days to live off of their work, I think. And so I wonder if maybe you have some thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, obviously I was very fortunate to grow up in like, you know, a middle class house Mm. where my parents both worked. I mean, it was really interesting because I don't think I understood class. And so my parents always told us that we were poor. And so that was sort of my understanding. So it took me a while to sort of like be like, but wait a second, we live in this house that looks a certain way. Right. I think because my favorite artists were like Sheryl Crow and Tori Amos, and they'd talk mm. about how they're, you know, they didn't have success until they were 35. In my mind, I was like long game. Like I just knew long game. And so I'm like, you know, and I had a lot of my friends who were trying to make it and they were like doing the server thing and hustling. And I was like, this could take 15 fucking years. Right. Like I, I need... And again, I think because I had like a bread and butter, like stability is so important kind of like upbringing. I was the oldest child. It was like the first thing I did actually in a lot of ways was get a full-time job mm-hmm. um, at George Brown. I still don't make enough money from the art to to live and do. And, and part of the problem is my own problem is that like I'm, I do too many things. Like I think if mm-hmm. I was just focused in one genre, but like, I mean, books don't pay the lot, you know, mm-hmm. like in terms of like rent or like a a life for a very long time. feel jealous Uh, from even this page is white (laughs) i wonder um before we talk about if you might read it sure i have uh, i have a photo of it on my phone oh wow whiteness the meteor that fractured our planet shattered us apart our memories erased brown fragments unanchored in white space this is why every time a brown person sees another brown person a double take do i know you In my dreams, we clutch each other, praise each other, desperate to reconnect. But when I awake, I'm jealous of you, of how much white people like you. Or maybe all this time, I've been aching for you to remember me, to remember you as intimate instead of adversary. So how can I love you better? What I ask myself when I feel jealous won't let scarcity come between. We have already lost so much. 
when we should be friends. <laughs> Why did you um, make your eyes go wide? Oh, I don't know. I just, I, it makes me emotional just because I think about, um, I don't know. I think about the lack of intimacy with other brown people sometimes in the ways that like, mm. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I do have like brown people around me who I love and adore, but I do think that sometimes there's like a weird tension with brown people that like, I can't quite place my finger on. And, you know, I, I'll never forget Harry Ainley in, in high school, there was like a brown, like it was a, a quad. And so like, you know, the jocks were in one corner, whatever, whatever, everyone had a corner, but the brown people had a corner mm. and I always had to go through the brown corner and, you know, I always just felt so weird that this was like, here I was as an outsider and here they were technically as outsiders, but they'd managed to find each other. And yet, like, I couldn't like be part of that group. And even when I think about Toronto, there's like a lot of like South Asian spaces that have existed informally that I just always felt a little bit on the outside of. And again, sometimes that sounds really cliche because I think on some level, everyone feels like an outsider, but mm -hmm. I, I think especially in part of marginalized groups. And I've experienced this in queer community and trans community where it's like, sometimes it's like the people who are supposed to be your people are not your people. And like, I find that the hardest to be honest. And, and so much of my work, especially as I move forward has been a bit more about thinking about like lateral violence or like sort of like intercommunity, like the way that like we, um, we allow white supremacy, we, we buy into white supremacy in the ways that we don't know how to support each other. And so anyways, I, that poem hits home, I guess. <laughs> she wrote it. <laughs> she did. How does your brownness fit into the way that you work or fit into your work itself? It's such a complicated question because it's something that I really struggle with. You know, like I often, I talk about sometimes how for me, Madonna in the nineties, you know, before like conversations around appropriation were happening really in the same way. And a lot of pop stars got away with stuff that they wouldn't get away with now. But for me, like Madonna doing the Indian thing was, that was representation for me. Like mm. that was the closest thing to representation. As a brown kid in Edmonton, like a lot of how I came to appreciate and value my own brownness was through white people who were either Madonna or this lesbian best friend, or even when white people started coming to the Psy Center, you know, it was like, mm. those were the moments that I was like, oh, you mean this thing about me that I've had shame about, or that I feel weird about actually has value. Like, that's how I come to learn. That's how I come to value it. And so in my art, I've had to really, especially, in, I would say in the last 10 years, like, that's where I've had to do a lot of my work. But it's like, how do you be brown as an artist in Canada? How do you be brown as an artist uh, in, like, a Western context? Yeah. And I think for me, it's like learning things like, you know, for instance, uh, like the 10 year and um, the 10 year anniversary edition of a, my first book, God Loves Hair, which I self-published um, 10 years ago is coming out this year. And like, I've taken all the translations, you know, I'm like mm. the, in, the, in the first edition in 2010, I had, you know, there's like, you know, um, did you ever see Nagina with Sri Devi? Mm. Yeah. So like, there's a story called Sri Devi mm. in the book mm. and I like translate one of the, you know, main theory Dushman. Like there's like, so I actually translate what that means and mm -hmm. I'm like, let's take out the translation. So, I mean, like those are gestures mm. in which I'm like, I feel like I can honor my brownness, whatever that means, as opposed to it being about something that I'm leveraging to self-exotify mm. or draw white people in with a certain way. It's like you're in conversation with it, right? Like totally. you started off at this 
this this place where you were including translations in your book and now you're able to like go back and like kind of make a decision about that. And I actually think that that is, that's like a wonderful thing. You know, I think we often tend to like come into like our identity politics or our political identities in our twenties or late teens, like very like hardcore and very, <laughs> like, it's very fixed. It's such fixed energy. And um, oftentimes we're wrong. Um, and oftentimes, and, and like, I feel okay with like being unequivocal about the wrong because <laughs> it changes, you know, like as we age, like this stuff in, inherently changes. And if it's not changing, then personally, I just don't What's think you're growing. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, you know, as a queer person really mm-hmm. resonated with Hinduism because it gave me a place mm-hmm. in a way because of, and again, I know that there's like places in Hinduism that don't actually create space for queer people, but like the kind of Hinduism I grew up with um, did. And so, you know, in my early work, like there's a a lot of like, uh, like Hindu references Mm. and uh, Hindu celebration. And it's only, you know, in coming to understand Hinduism more broadly and what's happening in you know, a global context in, in relation to Hinduism that I like pulled back on that stuff. I'm like, Mm. Oh, me being out here, uh, augmenting Hinduism in a particular way actually can have damaging effects, uh, to Muslim populations. Mm. And so just like thinking about things outside of a vacuum and thinking of things outside of my own personal experience, I think has been really important. Um, and that's not, and again, I think the, the complexity there is like, how do you honor the truth of who you are and of your experience without um, pandering, without self-exotifying, without like, you know, uh, educating? Because that's the other thing that I've done a lot in my work is like using art as a way to educate, Yeah. whether it's the white gaze, the cis gaze, the straight gaze. And it's like, as I move forward as an artist it's like how do i make sure i'm not doing that anymore yeah unless i'm choosing to right Right. it's one thing to choose to but like um why am i making that choice right questioning those choices am i making that choice because i want people to approve because i want a quote-unquote larger more accessible audience or you know that sort of thing it's interesting to see um your relationship (laughs) with like i guess the adornment like this indian adornment um in terms of how, because I feel like when you did that photo series, Trisha, yeah. yeah, was of that was that when you were kind of publicly transitioning? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm like that to me. That was like I think a very useful way of kind of engaging with that. But I think like the, the, just to kind of go back to articulate a little bit of why it was also difficult for me, it just felt so fixed. I was like, I don't know if this is the self-exotifying thing you know what does a modern indian woman in india look like now is she walking around with a bindi and a nose ring maybe not you know it's like our fixed image in the diaspora of what's happening at home totally or what we grew up watching on bollywood movies and that kind of thing as a a brown kid that was you know quote-unquote male I, I wasn't allowed to access those yeah. things. So for me, like wearing a bindi without getting like super political, overly political about it was like a, a way to reclaim a part of myself that I didn't get to have. Right. So, you know, uh, again, I know that these things have like a broader context. And I think for me, it's important to know what the broader context is, but at the same time, I want to honor like my own like truth, whatever that means. And so for me, you know, yeah, there are definitely times where, 
you know, I'm on a shoot and someone's like, oh, do you have one of those like, you know, nose pieces? And I'm like, oh, what's happening here? You know, mm. is this this thing that's happening where they want me to be presenting in a particular kind of way? But it's also a big part of who I am. And I feel more beautiful when mm -hmm. I wear these things. And is there room for that? Like, yeah. sometimes it seems like a lazy argument to be like, but I like doing it, you know? And I, I actually think prefer that more <laughs> than the like, I'm a curry scented bitch, to be quite right, honest, right, you know, right. like, I think it's like, it's actually more simple. Some of it's also just familiar. Like when I look at my mom, you know, she always matched her bindies. Mm -hmm. And like, I love that. I love like, she's wearing green, like, I'm basic. Like, it's just like, if you're wearing green, I want to wear it like, you know, I want to wear a green bindi, right? right. So yeah, you want to match your bindi to yeah, your lipstick. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, what does success look like to you now after, after everything we've talked about, after like publicly declaring failure failed yeah <laughs> the most important thing to me as an artist actually and maybe i'll get struck down for saying this isn't necessarily more followers isn't necessarily a wider audience but like again i'm here for the long game and so mm -hmm. uh you know one of the things that really shook me about the timbaland biography is when like i think ll cool j tells him that his body is his instrument and like i mean oh is that when he got jacked I think so, which again, I don't necessarily agree with all of that <laughs> whole thing, but it's more just as someone who's turning 40 and who, you know, worked on as a, on a computer for 15 years, mm. I have like all kinds of like physical pains. And as someone who's like worked, 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 I haven't taken care of my body. And for me, the most important thing is like time. Like I want to have time to um, make art. You can follow the show on Instagram at Burnout Pod. Subscribe to the newsletter for more thoughts on how to keep going. It's at anupa.substack.com, A-N-U-P-A.substack.com. I'm very grateful to Lal for providing the theme song for Burnout. The song is called Dark Beings. Original music provided by Jamal Padmore. And if you like the show, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. Burnout will be back again soon with more episodes when the time is right. Until then, take really good care of yourself and your loved ones. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of Burnout is supported by Factor and Canada's private radio broadcasters. For more information, visit factor.ca. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.